courts on Wednesday afternoon. I don't know if you, uh, on Wednesday morning, I will be at Arden Courts. <laughs> Make sure if you haven't had a chance to uh, take a look at uh, the children to see what they look like this morning. It's always entertaining when the dads are responsible for taking care of the clothes and the hair. In Matthew's Gospel, we read this story about Jesus and the temple tax. After Jesus and his disciples, this is Matthew seventeen twenty four. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, "Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax?" "Yes, he does," he replied. So when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first one to speak up. "So what do you think, Simon?" he asked. "From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes?" They collect them from their own sons, or do they collect them from others? Well, from others, Peter answered. Ah, so then I guess the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and there you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. We often read that story and think about its parallel with the story where they came to Jesus and said, so, uh, what do we do with this, this problem with the money? We got Caesar's face on the money, right? Should we be paying this tax? Jesus says, look, give Caesar's what's Caesar's, give God's what is God's. Or we look at it as a miracle story, another one of these nifty tricks that Jesus pulls, in this case, where he gets his tax check to show up in the mouth of a fish, which some of us might find to be helpful right about now, or somewhere between now and April 15th. But the fact is that the local IRS agents were not coming by Capernaum to inquire after Jesus' religious practices. This was probably a case where they were trying to trip him up again, and once again, Jesus dodges their efforts. But they were collecting the temple tax, the two drachma tax, also known as the half shekel tax, depending on whose money you're using to pay it. And we read about that tax in our passage today at the beginning in chapter 30 of Exodus, starting in verse 11. Yahweh says to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one has to pay Yahweh a ransom for his life at the time he is counted then no plague will come upon them when you number them. Everyone who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras, about half an ounce, roughly. This half shekel is an offering to Yahweh. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to Yahweh. The rich aren't to give more than a half shekel, the poor aren't to give less when you make the offering to Yahweh to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before Yahweh, making atonement for your lives. 
We read later on in Exodus in chapter 38 that when Moses collected all the shekels, all the half shekels, that the silver obtained from those of the community who were counted in the census was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels. The 100 talents were used to make the sockets that a couple of weeks ago, if you saw Joe put the video up on the screen, the sockets that the, uh, that the, the poles went into. One of the rabbis tells a story about Moses, the first great accountant of the Jewish people, sitting up at night scratching his head trying to figure out what happened to the 1,775 shekels. He knew what happened to the talents. They went for the sockets, but he was killing himself trying to figure out where the 1,775 shekels went. The rabbi says God caused Moses to lift up his eyes, and then he noticed the hooks that the curtains were hanging on. He said, oh, yeah, that's right. That's where the other 1,775 shekels went. But this silver was used to build the tabernacle. And in subsequent years, it became the custom to collect this half-shekel tax from everybody to take care of the needs of maintaining the service of the temple, whether it was fixing something or providing for uh, the uh, construction of new or replacement tools. This half-shekel tax became part of maintaining worship in the sanctuary. And the rabbis make a big deal about this fact that everybody is to give something. Rich or poor, everybody gives the same thing. Everybody gives a half-shekel. If you're dirt poor, you give a half-shekel. If you've got money coming out the wazoo, you give a half shekel. Everybody gives a half shekel, and everybody gives a half shekel every year. Why? Because everybody is equal before God. Everybody possesses equal worth, equal dignity. Every human being made in the image of God is called to worship God. It is worthy of the privilege of worshiping God. And is expected to worship God, among other ways, by providing out of their resources. So all are called to give something. But as we see going on in the passage, there are some that are called to give much. Right after this, starting in verse 22, we get the secret formula for Coke. Yahweh said to Moses, take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hint of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. I don't want just any yo-yo coming along and trying to mix this up. I want a skilled perfumer to do this. It's going to be the sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table, all its articles, the lampstand, its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, all its utensils, the basin with its stand. You're going to consecrate them so they'll be most holy. Whatever touches them will be holy. Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them because I want them to be holy too. They're my priests. And say to the Israelites, this is my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Don't pour it on men's bodies. Don't make any oil with the same formula. It's sacred. You've got to treat it as sacred. Anybody who makes perfume like it, anybody who puts it on anyone other than a priest, must be cut off from his people. 
Likewise with the incense, Yahweh said to Moses, Take fragrant spices, gum, resin, anica, galbanum, pure frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It's to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to powder and place it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I'll meet with you. It's going to be most holy to you. And don't make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to Yahweh. Whoever makes any like it is to enjoy its fragrance. Well, he must be cut off from his people. So there's the work of skilled craftspeople in perfuming involved in worship. And Yahweh says to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, knowledge, and all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut, to set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. I've given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I've commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, with the atonement cover on it, all the other furnishings of the tent, the table, the articles, pure gold lampstand, its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. The anointing oil, fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. And what we see here is that God calls some to give much. But of course, what they're giving is what God has already given them, isn't it? Same way later on, when the people bring all of the, the gold and silver and other goods that they are bringing for the, uh, to, to construct the tabernacle. In fact, as we're going to see later on down the line, Moses had to tell them, look, stop, we got enough. You don't need to keep giving it. How did they get it? They were slaves in Egypt, right? God provided it to them by liberating them. They uh, took some gratuities from the Egyptians on their way out the door. And here we have these skilled craftsmen, skilled in every imaginable area that God has put his spirit in. Fill them with the Spirit of God, with skill, with ability, with knowledge, and all kinds of crafts. God, it seems, cares about how things look, how they smell, how they feel. God wants for His holy tabernacle to be a place of beauty. And he's equipped his people to make that happen. When the rabbis were trying to figure out the rules for the Sabbath, and we got a part on this coming after this, they said, okay, here's how we know what, what you can't do on the Sabbath. Anything that was involved in building the tabernacle, that stuff you can't do on the Sabbath. And they go into such detail, bringing out all of the activities that would have been involved in making these things. We read these passages, and it seems like just a list of stuff in a church, maybe. But as we saw before in the last few chapters, as Joe was teaching, and as we're going to see later on, God dwells in loving detail. 
on these things. He says, you're going to make these things just as I tell you. And then we read, and the people made them just as God had commanded. God could have said, look, just pitch a tent, sacrifice some animals once in a while, and we'll be good. But he didn't do that. God sets up a system of worship that is regular, that is beautiful, that's mysterious, that involves things that you don't experience anywhere else. And it involves some people giving much, but it involves everybody giving something. But as we see in this passage as well, there are some that give wrongly. Some who couldn't wait to take the opportunity to give of their gold for the construction of the tabernacle. We had some folk get impatient when the people saw that Moses, chapter 32, was so long in coming down from the mountain. They gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses guy who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to dance. That's, by the way, they got up to do the dance. If you watch the uh, Cecil B. DeMille film, The Ten Commandments, you will see the only G-rated orgy in Hollywood history. That's what was going on. Well, so Yahweh catches wind of this and says to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. You you may have had this experience when you come home. Do you know what your daughter did today? (coughs) Moses is like, What, my people? These are your people. I've seen these people, Yahweh said to Moses. They're stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of Yahweh as God. Yahweh, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, which you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say uh, it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and don't bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'll give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then Yahweh relented and didn't bring on his people the disaster he threatened. If you look at this passage, compare it to what comes before and really what comes after, you see a lot of similarities, don't you? We have people giving of their gold for purposes of worship. We have Aaron leading the people in worship. We have a festival called. We have sacrifices made, burnt offerings, fellowship offerings. You have eating and drinking. And 
that's part of these holy festivals that God commanded too, right? But it's twisted. It's twisted for one thing, because the way they worship God is precisely how God told them not to worship Him, right? I am Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image of anything. Not even if, as some suggest, the calf wasn't actually the idol. The idea was that God was supposed to be sitting on the calf. You get this in the ancient Near East. You get the deities sitting on top of an animal. And so some have argued that Aaron was just making the calf so that people could worship the God that you couldn't see who was sitting on the calf. I think God would find that excuse unpersuasive. Much as Moses does when later on when Aaron says, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy what happened. You know, um, I, the, these people, they gave me this gold, I, I threw it in, and this calf came out. Gosh. No, this is the work of a skilled artisan. God has, I think, hardwired us to give of ourselves, to give of what we have for the sake of worshiping something. We all worship. The word worship comes from the old English worth-ship. It's a way you ascribe worth to something. What's the, the psalm says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. That's worship. And so when you give of what you have, you are saying this deity, this thing I'm giving to is worth my giving what I have. I'm giving to this God who is worthy of all praise, worthy of my half shekel tax, worthy of the gold, worthy of what I have to offer in terms of my skill and my ability. Do you know anybody who doesn't worship? Do you know anybody who doesn't make sacrifices for something? Who doesn't give what they have to something? I mean, it might be their own pleasure. It might be their own addiction. It could be things that can be worthwhile, like family, kids, profession. Like with anything else, we're called to invest the things that God has given us and doing the work that he's called us to. But if we get impatient, then it becomes a temptation for us to give wrongly. If we ignore what God has told us, then there's a temptation to give wrongly. If we're willing, like Aaron, to go along with the crowd, to let other people Tell us to do something we know we should, then we can give wrongly. All give some, and some give much. Some give wrongly. I'll leave it to you to read the lovely story of what happens to those who did. But then, toward the end of our passage, once again, we find that all give some. In chapter 34, 
God says, celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, just like I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, so that in that month, for in that month you came out of Egypt. Now the first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb, but if you don't redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. This, by the way, does not mean that you're supposed to sacrifice your son to, to Yahweh. You, you redeem. There's an understanding that there's a certain appropriate price that you would pay. Again, to acknowledge that the first fruits of what you have are to be given to God, the best of what you have, because God is the one who gives life after all. Incidentally, a really stupid thing to do if God isn't who he says he is. I mean, think about it. You've got a goat. Right? You got your firstborn goat. Do you know you're going to get another goat? The answer is not Jesus. Do you know that you're going to get another goat? No, you might not. The goat might get sick, might break its leg. No more goat. Now, obviously, back then, a goat is not just something that you have in the petting zoo. The, a goat is, a, is, is capital. I mean, you get hair from a goat to weave into stuff. You get milk from a goat. Goats are useful things to have. And then at some point, if it's a really special occasion, you might sacrifice that goat for a festival. You might kill the goat for a, ce- a celebratory meal. But you don't know that you're going to get another goat after that first one. When your crop comes in and you take that first pass through, the first fruits, are you sure that you're going to get any more harvest from that? No. You hope you will. You think you will. But there could be disease, there could be a storm, something could happen, and you might not get anything else. That's a really, really stupid thing to bring that stuff to God and give it away. Unless God's who he says he is. Unless he is the one who backs up his promises about taking care of you. No one, God says, is to appear before me empty-handed. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. The money we give the service we render, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we offer. All of God's people are called to bring these things. We bring them as God enables us to do that. But we are all to bring them. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. We're going to take communion now. Traditionally, this is thought of as the sacrifice of God's people. But it commemorates the sacrifice of God for his people. All give some, some give much, but one gave all. And when we take communion together, we affirm that we are part of the community of people that God has called to be his, that God has called to be part of his body. So I'll invite you to stand and recite with me the Nicene Creed. When you come up, please take the elements and bring them back to your seats, and we'll take of them together. The red is wine, the white is grape juice, the bread is 
unleavened. We believe in one God, the Father of the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.